Well, welcome back, everybody, to a wonderful day. I can tell by the, the conversations over lunch and variously that people are thoroughly enjoying it and deeply appreciating the stories we heard this morning. And this afternoon, we're going to have a whole lot more um, to share with you. I'm Robin Holmes, and I'm the very fortunate to have been the senior curator at the time when we were dealing with Christine and the removal of the, the Murray, in Murray Louise's story, the removal of the archive to the National Library. And it was, it's a joy to have you back with your family. So thank you. It's a delight. Um, I hope you're all refueled, that you've all had a chance to have a peek at that archive. And Murray Louise has already given us a, a sense this morning of just how rich this wonderful archive of Peter Porter's is and how much it reveals about his own work as a poet and a writer. But this afternoon we're going to really focus on how it reveals things about other people's creative lives and the intersections between them. And I was looking at this gathering of uh, eminence on the stage that we have um, and uh, we were just laughing about, well, I said, what's the collective noun for poets? And we just had a few offerings of a pod of poets, a poesy of poets, a podium of poets, or as Nicholas Pounder just said, a rivalry of poets. <laughs> However, we have this first afternoon session is with uh, looking at the influence of Peter's poetry and his friendship on uh, particularly the work of other poets and Australian poets in particular. So this discussion will last for about 40 minutes, after which there'll be time for some questions, um, and then we'll have a short break for afternoon tea. Uh, Chris, uh, our keynote speaker, Chris Wallace-Crabb, is back to chair our discussion um, and will be joined by Gig Ryan, Craig Sherburne and Peter Goldsworthy. Gig is the poetry editor at The Age and a freelance reviewer. Her seventh book, New and Selected Poems, won the 2012 Grace Levin, Levin Prize for Poetry and the 2012 Kenneth Slessor Prize for Poetry. She's written songs with bands driving past and disband. I was thinking about Peter's taste for, uh, <laughs> for bands, or not, as the case may be, um, and is now working on another book of poems. A poet, journalist, um, and fiction and non-fiction author, Craig's work has appeared in most of Australia's leading literary journals and anthologies. His novel, Tree Palace, was shortlisted for the 2015 Miles Franklin Award, and the Amateur Science of Love won the 2012 Melbourne Prize for Best Writing. His memoir, Hoi Polloi, was shortlisted for the Queensland and Victorian Premier's Awards, and its follow-up, Muck, won, Muck, hmm, uh, tempting, won the Queensland Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction in 2008. Proving that science and the arts can be the perfect match, Peter Goldsworthy graduated with a degree in medicine and spent many years working in the area of alcohol and drug rehabilitation. He's since divided his time equally um, between writing and general practice, winning major literary awards across a range of genres, poetry, short story, the novel, opera and theatre, and of course having a writer-musician for a daughter as well, <laughs> Anna Goldsworthy. Um, in 2010, he was made a member for, of the Order of Australia for his services to literature, and he tells me that he's just uh, published the first book of poetry, his first book of poetry for 15 years, um, which came out last year, The Rise of the Machines and Other Love Poems. Interesting title, too. <laughs> um, I wonder if that is, uh, you know, that de deviation that we're camouflaged that we've had from the morning. But before we start, and I think we're going in the order of Peter, Gig and Craig, and then a general discussion, 
Um, let's, let Peter Porter set the scene for us. Here he is reading in one of his three oral histories for the National Library, reading his poem, The Painter's Banquet, a poem which he wrote to honour Arthur Boyd. The Painter's Banquet. They came with their gifts of the senses and of the groves planted for them by God in the retina. They knelt by sandy waters and saw a violin shore, a fronded region of high responding light, Rosella afternoon. They gossiped in laps, lay under umbrellas of the tumid shade. They told colours in every story. When the pelican glided, they overcame light. When the daisy unpeeled, they saw grave clothes. There were many with eyelashes, like Veronese's fans. Others sat solitary as meat on a plate, waiting for heaven to happen. <clears throat> Change, said some, was the way of their world. Animals answering the call of light under Hyperion's crag. But, said several, it is the unchanging we celebrate. Sirocco afternoons, gods hard-pressed by their abstract eyes. Dangerous modes in all weather when obsessionals walk to a favourite spur above the land. Below them kingdoms boil and they find twisting paths through middle space. This is the sumptuous gallery of those who have eaten the world. Oh, the ochre, burnt sienna, the pulverising red which rocks have earned from the sun. In little spaghetti-making towns, the dead artificers' creations burn all sophistry from pilgrims' eyes. It was a wonderful party to be at. We write our thank-you letters in the world's far-reaching galleries. Who will clean up now? All the water in the reservoirs won't remove the stain from Golgotha. We think back instead. Little Andrea has drawn a sheep with a bright stone upon a smooth-faced rock. Lucky for him, a Medici is passing. Soon the banquet will be set again. Well, um, what a wonderful honour and privilege to be here on this occasion. And uh, also with Catherine and Jane and Christine here. Um, in my last year at Darwin High School, 1968, um, I took to smoking a pipe and wearing a cravat. For a pimply-faced 16-year-old, that would have been a stole disaster anywhere, but worn with a Darwin rig of short sleeve shirt, shorts, long socks and hush puppies, it was a mega disaster, <laughs> off the scale of pretentiousness. I don't know who I thought I was. Bertrand Russell, perhaps. I was reading his history of Western philosophy at the time. Or Gertrude Stein, I was reading her autobiography. Um, I used to sometimes wear the cravat with thongs down fishing at the wharf, <laughs> smoking and reading Gertrude Stein. In the high school yearbook that year, I put my ambition in probably as poet, uh, mysteriously, because I'd never written a poem in my life. But I had read some. And... Uh, Keats was my favourite at that time, another doctor writer. I was interested in like Stein. I was interested in doctor people who combine medicine literature or s somehow. Anyway, I arrived in Adelaide in 69, a medical student and a 17-year-old self-styled angry young poet. I was very lonely. My dress sense might have had something to do with that. <laughs> um, so I kind of switched from the pipe to joints and uh, the, the cravat had given away to Che Guevara and Beret. I was... But my friends... 
My friends were mostly poets, but they were those, un, uh, those sort of unrequited one-way pen friendships. And in particular, my, my best friends were um, this wonderful series that I discovered that year, um, the Penguin Modern Poets series, and a few years later, the Penguin Modern European Poets series. This is Penguin Modern Poets too, Kingsley Amos, Don Moraes, and Peter Porter. Actually, my favourite at that stage, given being a bit of a young poet, was probably Penguin Modern Poets 5, which was you know, Ginsberg, Ferlinghetti, and... Uh, but, but some, um, some of Porter, Peter Porter got through my sort of sick self, thick, self-preoccupied head. And in particular, um, the poem that really arrested me, and it arrested me because of its title, Once Bitten, Twice Bitten, Once Shy, Twice Shy. I didn't realise that this, the Penguin selection came from, this is the 68, my 68 reprint, um, didn't, it had come from his first book, Once Bitten, Twice Bitten, one of the great, and Chris alluded to that this morning, one of the great titles, and an aphorism in its own right. Actually, my second favourite, Porter poem um, title, and he, was, he gives a great title, is, uh, was um, The Next Hundred Years Will Be Religious. I love that. I love that <laughs> title. I love that poem. But this started off like this. The trap setter in a steel dawn picks up his dead rabbits and goes home whistling. His tune lies over the wet fields in the shrinking morning shadows. The gift of morning life brings five broken backs for the rabbits dangling in his hessian wrap. Well, you know, I used to trap rabbits for pocket money before I took up the cravat and the pipe. And it suddenly struck me that, um, you know, poetry could be more about ceasing upon the midnight, you know, with no pain or um, the best minds of your generation destroyed or, you know, gong-tormented seas. It could actually be about mundane things like trapping rabbits. It's I was just looking downstairs at uh, the first draft of this one. There's a wonderful line in it. Now it is electric 11 o'clock. The stewing meat smells savoury past the prune-back roses and wafts on the street's spindly limits the only fragrance of defence and love. Down there in that draft, he, that magic choice of adjective electric is it's just 11. It's 11 o'clock. And it looks like he's, instead of the only fragrance, he's got either the only pigment or figment of defence and love. So it's, it's just, it is tempting to become a literary scholar, you know, as, <laughs> as you were saying, eh, Marie? Uh, um, sorry, Marie-Louise, this morning. Anyway, that showed me a few things. It also showed me that selection, that uh, it was possible for an intense young poet to actually, that humour, wit, had a part in poetry. And, um, and the fact that this bloke was an Australian, which jumped from the page immediately, just from the trap rabbits, and I thought, wow. Many years later, I wrote this, uh, for his 80th birthday, the fest shift, I wrote a bit of doggerel, it was a sonnet, on first looking into Penguin's Porter. It's my, my own little riff on Yeats. Yeats? Keats. Yeats, Yeats did not study medicine. <laughs> he did, Yeats did write about gong tormented seas. Much had I travelled in the realms of rhyme by 68 at Sweet and Sour 16. Up many English sonnets had I climbed, which bards in fealty to Petrarch limbed, and longer verse that Eliot or Auden or deep browed Hughes ruled as their domain. Yet never till Penguin Modern Poets too had Peter Porter spoken out loud and true. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new wormhole swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez, when with baffled eyes he stared at the Baltic. What? Where? How? When? Filled more with weird surprise than wild surmise. I was once bitten, twice bitten, thrice. Well, look, the, the, the thing about that bit of doggerel is, um, the most important thing about it, it's nowhere near as good as Peter's own, Ye uh, Keats. I keep wanting to say Yates. <laughs> Keats riff. Um, 
it's superb poem on first looking at Chapman's Hesiod. Or, in fact, it's not or Les Murray's parallel poem to that poem, The Returnees, the poems that started or continued the proxy war between Athens and Boeotia in the personae of those two poets. But in that poem, Peter describes Chapman as a perpetual motion poetry machine, but he's also describing himself. He was also a perpetual motion conversation machine, as we, we've heard, and one of the more non-repetitive around. I first met the conversational machine in person at the 1982 Commonwealth Games, and probably but they were held that year in the Boeotia that, uh, the Boeotia that Brisbane still was. Needless to say, you hadn't come for the Games. There was a Commonwealth Literary Congress held in conjunction with the event which, uh, in Brisbane, which perhaps also provided a good excuse to, for him to visit his hometown. I was excited, so excited to be there. I was still too full of myself to take note of what he read. But I'll never forget the generosity uh, when we were just sitting on a bench in the park. Uh, when he just spoke openly, frankly, uh, matter-of-factly and at length um, and, and full of just, just a generous openness and generosity would be the theme of what I, the rest of the things I'm going to say. The next year, 1983, he stayed with us in Adelaide, he actually slept in my older daughter Anna's bed, which is a very narrow nine-year-old's bed with big colourful quilt covered with jungle animals. He was judging the Booker Prize that year. <laughs> And he was lugging a suitcase full of books around with him, which was jammed under the bed. And uh, uh, the, actually, the winner was uh, The Life and Times of Michael Kay by J.M. Kurtzier. Um, I actually contacted uh, uh, John last week to ask me if he'd gone to the booker and met Peter Porter, but he didn't. And the rest of what he put in the email about the booker, I'm afraid I'll have to sell to the National Library. <laughs> um, but it's pretty interesting. Um, Anyway, I remember him spending an entire afternoon lying on that uh, quilt reading the novels. I'd like to think that's where he came to his decision, but that's my fantasy. Anyway, we, I'd, I'd arranged for him to do a reading in Friendly Street, and we went to that, and he read um, what I've written. I've written as a mum. I do remember that, and I was starting to pay attention big time, and, and I was floored by that, and once again this morning. It's something you can listen to a hundred times. We went to the Victoria Square pie cart after the reading and had a pie floater. And you know that's um, a very Boeotian dish, I suppose. It's very unathenian. If we're whole, I know it's a bit of a tiresome kind of war now. That one, the tussle on the jam jar, but um, he liked it. I couldn't make it to the memorial uh, in Melbourne, unfortunately, after he died. But I was very pleased that Anna was able to play some Bach there or play some tuned percussion. <laughs> it was kind of a, sort of laying out maybe a bit of an uh, extra quilt to make him. And posthumously comfortable. I, I, I really liked. I loved the fact that uh, that could happen. But look, the, um, this book had just come out. This is 1983. This stunning, stupendous compendium of riches. The first, the first collected poems. There's another one later. And uh, you know, everything's in there at that point. Um, it was also interesting to track track the poems in it and see how those first ones, uh, how he'd become more elusive, more nice move, connective, um, and more cryptic as he'd, uh, you know, on, on a couple of levels, on the kind of maybe syntactic level, but also cryptic in, in the arcane knowledge. You, you needed a dictionary to, to read some of these poems. Um, more recently, Google's, I find very Google, Google very useful. Um, not so much for the Latin, but the German and, and things like that. It's, uh, and even the French, there is French. Here and there, but all the themes are there. You know, the big themes: death, cats, love, cats, um, gardens, cats, 
and uh, I think it's uh, The Death of Cats. That's a poem that has a French title. I don't know why that has some significance in that one. But humour, humour is there, and you know, there are, there are, can range, it ranges from wit to black humour, perhaps that's his mode, to uh, you know, Monty Python X type. And I was thinking about what's the strangest, what is his strange poem, that category of, what is the strangest poem he ever wrote? And I think it's one about Gertrude Stein at Snail's Bay. It's a bit long to read, but I just want to, it's one of three poems, three transportations. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, this, uh, this I am Miss Stein, and this bay is mine. I am Miss Stein, pronounced steam, and the sea is green. Americans do not like European pronunciation. I live in Europe because Americans do not like Europeans. I do not live in America because Europeans do not like Americans. I'm in Australia because I hear you have an opera and I'm searching for snails. I'm not here to buy your paintings. <laughs> I, I love that line. <laughs> it's in the context of Stein. I love that line in the context of Stein. <laughs> we, could just do, we could do some riffs on this, right? A sort of slam. Anyway, look, I won't read it all, but I, it is a very strange poem, and, uh, but it's one of my favourites. Um, I've got some other Gertrude Stein stories, but I won't tell them now. From, from my adolescence. In 1991, I had a novel published in London. It was the first time I had actually been to London or Europe, improbably. And the book was a novel, but Peter arranged a poetry reading for me one evening at the University of London. There were three people there, besides him and me, and one of those was the Bloomsbury publicist who was driving me around. But that same trip I remember arriving, I went to the first ever English football game I'd seen, Arsenal versus Chelsea it was, and I arrived very late at Peter and Christine's um, in Cleveland Square after going to the game. But they were very tolerant and gave me something to eat and we talked very late. And then I, I, still, I just remember the sheer joy. It was about minus two degrees, it was February, and a very bad time to launch a novel in London. Um, but I walked home from, um, from their place to uh, where I was staying. In, actually, William Hazlitt's old house, another kind of reason for sort of pathetic joy. Um, in Soho, just feeling absolutely overjoyed. And that generosity was uh, the start of a lot of, uh, you know, every, every time you ever went to London or any time Peter came to Australia, you came across him. It was a stand. It was legendary for a lot of us, you know, for a lot of Australian writers. On one visit, I remember him telling me that John Forbes had visited the week before. He, and Peter said he can talk, and I thought, <laughs> well, that's the pot calling. <laughs> he probably said the same thing about me because after a couple of drinks, I tend not to be able to shut up. But ten years later, in two thousand and one, he actually launched the uh, British edition of my selected poems, and uh, there were a lot more people there, mostly poets. I was so excited that night, I forgot to thank him. When I came to, it was 3 a.m. I was in Matthew Sweeney's house in uh, somewhere in Soho or somewhere around there, and uh, um, Lisa and I. And uh, I suddenly remembered I hadn't thanked him, but we somewhere on the pub, the long pub crawl, we'd lost him. I don't know what time he got home <laughs> that night, Christine. Um, but yeah, we all owe him something. There's a, there's a good poem by Les Murray actually called "More Than an Obiter Dichter." It's a kind of Latin German pun, thanking Peter for uh, everything he did for you know la the launching. I guess is what you would we're talking about in, and uh, I think Marie Louise was talking about in the archives of Australian poets in, in, into England and so I, it was a terribly generous and more than I deserved a speech to I just, unfortunately that got lost a long way too, I'd asked him for it this precious object, Peter Porter launched you know, his speech about your poems and that sort of 
ended up in some drain somewhere and probably mixed in some uh, ejector. Anyway. Look, I think the last time Lisa and I saw him in London was a couple of years before he died. We met him at Brown's, um, favourite watering hole, for lunch. And of course that turned into dinner. And he could talk. <laughs> and uh, wonderfully. But uh, we had to go to the theatre. And I think, and it was a, it was a terrific play that night in the West End, but I sometimes we sometimes think that we should have just torn up the tickets and listened on till 3am. Um, I certainly wish I'd, I, I talked a bit too, but I, I, you know, as Chris was saying, that beautiful analogy that the train would stop and you get on it or the bus would stop. But I wish I'd talked more and, and listened, uh, talked less and listened more. But I guess we still can, and I'm, I'm back to that sort of one-sided, unrequited pen friendship again, because it's all here. And uh, I thought, I was just to finish with this book. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the book he edited, the Oxford Book of Modern Australian Verse, and um, we heard a little bit about what was going through his head when he was selecting people for this, and of course we were all interested in what he chose from our poems, but... What did he choose from himself? And I, I actually contacted Peter Rose, wondering if he'd asked someone else to choose his poems. He said, no, he's pretty sure Peter chose his own three poems. Here. So what have they got? Well, Sadness of the Creatures is one. What, are they, what, are, what, what have they got in common? Well, they've got death in all three of them. They've got cats in two of them. Um, they've got gardens in two of them. It's an Australian garden for Sally Lehman. And this last one, Wish We Were There. Well, one thing that shows through in Peter's work always ever since that first book, once bitten, twice bitten, that sort of glimpses of paradise here and there. And uh, shall I read it or not? No. Running out of time. <laughs> so I'll recommend it to you. Wish we were there. And yeah, it's a glimpse of paradise. Yes, um, to continue on from uh, what Peter and Chris had said earlier, when you went to London as a poet, you know, it was kind of the British Museum, that was free, and maybe Peter Porter as well, and that was free. And I remember when I, when I met... Well, they were kind of equivalent, actually. I mean, you'd get as much knowledge of the world from either of them. But when I first met Peter, I'd kind of put it off. I just thought, you know, boring, old, blah, 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 and probably younger than what I am now. And, um, you know, I was, I was just assuming that I would dread it and, you know, yet another boring poet I couldn't stand, and, which there are many, unfortunately. And... Um, Anyway, so I met him for lunch, and within about, well, I, I, I don't know how, how quickly that I changed my mind, but the lunch went on for about five hours, so my mind was incredibly changed and converted. And I was then travelling from London to one of my brother's places down in Weymouth, and I had some of Peter's books with me, and I just kind of sat there and, like, read them day and night. To, you know, my sister-in-law just said, what are you doing? You are mad. <laughs> but it, it, it was just interesting that once I'd met him, because, of course, I had read a lot of his poems and, you know, it wasn't that I didn't admire and respect them, but it was just, to me then, a lot younger than I am now, you know, it was boring establishment that I wasn't, I thought, interested in. But anyway, I changed my mind completely and became a complete convert, as I'm sure he was very evangelical anyway. Um, but another thing I'd like to say that um, we've, we've all talked about what a great talker he was, but I actually felt with Peter what a fantastic listener he was. This is certainly what I felt. I mean, I, I felt that no one had listened to what I was saying to the same extent or understood or followed what I was saying and whatever I was saying. Um, and, you know, that was incredibly um, flattering. I mean, maybe he was just like that to women. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But um, he certainly gave me the impression of being a great listener and it was something incredibly valuable to have 
a friend that you could actually talk to and, you know, you, you actually knew they were understanding what you were saying. Um, another thing I wanted to say, which was referring to what Chris was talking about earlier as well, was about the traditional verse forms, which I suppose when I was younger had put me off. Yeah, had put, you know, it's not that I didn't admire that work, but I just kind of assumed that we had moved on since then. But, but, but his view was always that poets needed that sort of constraint and that you would have this constraint to work in of, of a rhyming scheme and that would free up your imagination, which, you know, is obviously in his work. Um, you know, which I found very interesting at the time because I hadn't actually thought of that before. I suppose I was 30 or something. Um, and another thing I found going through his work again, you know, there's this incredible um, aggression, I suppose. Um, people have said this about my work as well, but, you know, I actually think, you know, that that aggressiveness and competitiveness is an actually major prerequisites for a poet or for a writer of any kind. You know, you have to have that... Um, conviction that what you're saying is of, of interest or that, or that what you're finding of interest is going to be of interest to other, other people or you're, or you're going to force them to be interested in it, which is certainly what he did. You know, his poetry, um, John Ashbery, an American poet who I'm a great admirer of, who's almost polar opposite to Peter, but, but, but actually Peter did admire John Ashbery. But I find a similar thing in John Ashbery's work, even though they're very different poets, that they are embracing an entire universe, you know, they're, and they're forcing you to become interested in that universe. And, well, not forcing, I mean, it's a pleasurable, it's a pleasurable journey, you know, you just become... Their enthusiasm is so infectious. And, you know, that is, that is one thing that is, is in all his work. Um, but, yeah, it's been, you know, bizarrely refreshing to read through such challenging poetry again... Um, which I suppose I, I haven't actually looked at it for a couple of years, for a while. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm in a position as Poetry of the Age where I get so many books sent to me and I read so much contemporary poetry. Um, and it, it, it does kind of worry me that the kind of Facebook generation is actually... There's much less knowledge of, of things and there's much... I mean, I, you know, this is, of course, generalisation. There are always people who are going to be exceptions to this. But... but I, you know, Peter is very much of that generation where they kind of seem to believe that you could know a world and, and, and communicate this world and that your readers, you know, hopefully would follow it. Um, but I also think that there's a kind of confident tone. I mean, I've, I was kind of amused when the top of the list of dislikes was T.S. Eliot <laughs> because um, I, I love T.S. Eliot. And, you know, I, I'm sure he was influenced by Eliot, like most of his generation was. But I, but I think that, that there, there is a similar confident tone in, in Peter's work that I think younger writers, you know, don't have. We're so, um, you know, we're so influenced by philosophers, you know, saying that, you know, there is, no, there is no self, there is no unity, there is no this, there is no that. So we just think, well, there is nothing. So we'll just somehow write out of this blur. Whereas I think Peter's generation didn't think that, they, they, they didn't believe that. They felt very important, as Chris said, between the wars, between these two, like, great tragedies, they were very much, um, you know, aware of how important thought was, I suppose, in itself. Um, so, so, so I'm just going to read some of... I, I did actually review Peter's collected... God knows how I shrank this review to a, a thousand words. It seemed to be, like, ten thousand. But... I'm just going to read part of it because I, I kind of thought that I'd grasped it in some, to some extent, though 
rereading it, I have my doubts. Um, and of course, there's always the repetitions in Peter. There's cats, as we saw, we've all said, but also frogs. Frogs seem to be a major obsession, which I just, I've never really noticed a frog in my life, so I don't, I don't really follow it. There's often cats, frogs, and opera. Well, I actually like opera. Um, anyway, I've just um, got a few quotes here. Um, I say what a brilliant book it is, um, and mentioned the Farlap in the Melbourne Museum, which Chris mentioned. But Peter always said he had a mistake in it, because he says it's a bay gelding, and it's wrong that he was wrong about Farlap. But he didn't change it, because it was a good line. Um, but I'm just quoting that again, that it is Australian innocence to love the naturally excessive which was kind of one of his obsessions as well, that the more excessive you were, the better you were. Well, it certainly justified him, I think, but um, I, I think there's some truth in that, actually, that the writers who talk the most and are the most garrulous probably end up writing the most as well, oddly enough. Um, anyway, so from Farlap in 1961, as I'm saying, to the more recent lyrics, which I also love, often the simplest ones, and learned observations about Australia, Europe and its art, love and elegies, often to a cat. Um, he's covered most topics and most verse forms. Some critics stress his distinctive universe, um, cats, frogs and operas. But what art does, in my view, is make our world real to us, which I also find in John Ashbery, a completely different poet. And the details of biography and geography wither into insignificance. Um, Porter would write well, though differently, whether he lived in Yulan, Bator or Mill Park. Well, this is what I said when I wrote the review. I'm actually not so sure about that now. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would write, write as well, but I think he would be quite a different writer. Um, to read this two-volume encyclopedia is to enter a complete universe, our own universe, that alternates between comedy and tragedy, but encapsulates both. Harold Bloom, the critic, says of Shakespeare that art, or Shakespeare's art, defines and creates what we are which is true, I think, of Shakespeare, but I also think it's a stupid thing to say because I think that's actually what all poetry, all art does, and I certainly think that's what um, Peter Porter's work does, that it, it, it's impossible for me not to think of Australia, or not to think of Australian poetry without thinking of these poems like Farlap in the Melbourne Museum. You know, it's so much part of our sort of backdrop, so much part of the furniture. I remember saying this to, to him once, and, you know, kind of, you know, offhand, and... Um, well, he said, well, great, I'd like to be part of the furniture, you know, better, better than not being. Um, and, yeah, in his poems, like, no, there's, there's this constant enthusiasm, you know, which can be seen as aggression, I suppose, but I think it's an ag aggression that's a positive aggression, that no sorrow can stop the rush of life where everything is interesting to him. And he makes us look afresh at a world perhaps dismissed or accepted unquestioningly. You know, everything is observed, like, you know, people sitting at a bus stop, uh, you know, a couple kissing in the park, whatever. Everything is, everything is observed and commented on and refined in some way. And, and, and things that we've overlooked, you know, suddenly become important. Um, the candle to Auden, I think, rarely dims. I think Auden is actually such a massive influence over him that... I'm, I'm not really sure if he ever struggled out from that, but... Not all poets, you know, quote the past ironically, or younger ones do, perhaps. And Auden's influence is always um, an inspirational goad to his work. Um, poetry here is not a roped-off area that one tiptoes past. You know, it's, it's always the actual world we live in. Um, I'll just quote one of... 
uh, a poem, A Sour Decade, which I also love. I loved um, Happiness that Chris read. It's one of my favourites, actually. And this is another one of my favourites, A Sour Decade. That grief sits down in books but is no writer must be the just rebuke. And every lightless evening proves a fluke, the one grown brighter. And, you know, encapsulated in that is kind of his philosophy that that, you know, the, the, the poems of misery, of which there are a hundred books a year published, of the misery porn poetry and the illness porn poetry, that you, you, where you feel you can't criticise the person who's dying or, you know, mourning someone else's death, but if the poems are crap, they're crap. And that's kind of what Peter is saying in this, you know, the grief that's done in books but is no writer. Like that sadness or emotion is not going to make the poems good. Um, the first volume of the Selected finishes with, or collected, selected, collected, because then he wrote about four books after that, of course, um, finishes with the poet propelled back in time in Landscape with Orpheus from his 10th collection, um, English subtitles, 1991. The camera is rewound, and there is the old latch, the gate, the pepperina tree, the ferry rounding Onion's Point. The future must be crowded into now, Paradise and hell on deck, viewed through the telescope, the town hall clock shows Orpheus looking back, which is obviously autobiographical. Many poems are valedictory, such as Leaving Mantua, um, from his most recent work. Others speculate on, on art, such as Basta Sangue, um, Enough Blood in English. We move on through the gallery, praising art, which keeps the types of horror constant so that we may go about our business and forget. Which is kind of funny because he had this thing of you know, horrific nightmares every night of his life. Which, um, for someone who seemed so cheerful, there was always this sort of underlying tragedy as well. Um, some cast an amused eye on careerism and rivalry. Oh, this poem I always find so funny. Ambition fights talent more than sloth does. And then the other one, Heaney, Hughes, Hill and Harrison. Top poets' names begin with H, a team beyond comparison. Because he was always whinging that they got the attention and he didn't. <laughs> you know, like every poet I've ever met. <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, a Consumer's Report and Your Attention, Please, are well-known poems in, in both. The narrator's tome is neutral, while the meaning is, in fact, but making the meaning even more chilling, of course. Um, uh, yeah, another of his obsessions is um, in one poem, The New World, Happiness is Allowed. It criticises a patriotism that turns to chauvinism. And this was one of his pet hates, I think. Um, no doubt self-justifying, because he felt that he had left his country and that somehow we were resenting him because of it, which was not true. But his, you know, no in the new world, happiness is enforced, which I assume is a sort of dig at Australia. Um, and he elaborates this further in Essay on Patriotism, another poem. Um, True patriots all, the still swimming lobsters in the tank, the lambs that face the ocean through steel bars, the opals in the open cut. I left my mother's and my father's house and stepped on to a road beneath the stars. Um, fantastic Dante-esque line, but he's also having a dig at those who haven't done the same thing, I suppose. Um, 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 the succinct lyrics in um, Chagall Postcards, Our Decade and Happiness, are ones I particularly love, that Chris has already quoted. 
But one thing I did find as well is that the satire, savagery and absurdity are often saved for the rhyming couplets and blank verse, that each first form he chooses actually goes with a sort of genre of poetry as well. You know, he, he chooses this sort of poem to write the, the sort of bitter satirical ones, which I found an interesting thing, whereas the more discursive poems are often written in um, less, less traditional forms. So each form he chooses is modulated to its subject. Many poems are crowned with um, a feverish erudition that revivifies the past, um, reincarnating the verse forms of George Herbert, Christina Rossetti. Christina Rossetti, I think, is the only woman poet I actually heard him praise a lot. <laughs> Thomas Hardy and others. And there seems little distance between the Roman poet Marshall's catty comments and laments of love. Oh, you're telling me to stop? <laughs> Oh, sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, so many of these poems are, um, are anthems of anxiety. So many are part of our language. Um, his consistency was remarkable and his obstreperous atheism reveals that the only occupation is art, even when, like Dante, to quote one of his poems, our veil of tears seems just some five-year plan, ourselves lost in the heart of a dark wood. Thanks. I claim copyright on that Bay Gelding story because I first met Peter Porter in around about the mid-90s at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and I was an unpublished writer, but I'd gone to see him there read. He did, read beautifully. I went up afterwards to get him to sign a book and I said, oh, by the way, in that gauche way you do when you're an unpublished writer, um, the last line in that Farlap poem, you say it was a bay gelding. I come from a horse racing family and he was a chestnut. And Peter sort of looked up at the heavens and then looked at me from behind the barricades of those big spectacles and said, chestnut, eh? But it doesn't scan. <laughs> So even the great Farlap had to be second to the priorities of the poet. I never saw Peter again for about 10 years and he, when he'd read some of my work and as gig and Peter has said, he's just so generous in his praise and his offering to blurb books and, and then as gig has rather cheekily suggested we had a bromance through the last few years of his life which was probably true and rather fond of wise old men. Uh, David Maloof's um, had been mentioned quite a bit today and I had the pleasure recently of hearing David speak on the topic of what constitutes a serious writer. And immediately I thought of Peter Porter, for he, for me, epitomised that idea, the serious writer. Maloof spoke of the serious writer as being a true auto autodidact. Regardless of how many creative writing courses they've done, it comes down to teaching yourself what you want to write. And I, keep I kept thinking of Peter Porter, who was the supreme autodidact. He taught himself this, that he, the serious writer, must selfishly serve his unique imagination. He must worship the perfectly polished line. And as he wrote in his collection, Possible Worlds, dredge cool reflections from the image hoard. Maloof also spoke of the serious writer as a sort of serious amateur. 
not a professional writer, a hack writer of words like so much journalism, but building a body of work that will only permit certain pieces of writing into it, pieces that serve that body, and any piece that doesn't fit in must be discarded. Again, I thought of Peter Porter, who built in his 65 years of writing poetry such a big, sublime body of work, writing on average 40 poems a year, with only 10 or so surviving his end-of-year cull. The word serious is scattered throughout his poetry collections. He took seriously very, seriousness very seriously. For him, poetry was meant to be serious and meant to be difficult, not just another media voice. It's amazing to think that he was once a foot-in-the-door journalist as a, as a youth. I was a foot-in-the-door journalist for many years, and people could imagine that of me, but Peter Porter? <laughs> so he did foot-in-the-door journalism on himself, and he gave people like me the confidence to do that as well throughout my writing life. Which is not to say he, can't, he couldn't be funny. He was a very, very funny man. And in his poems such as Sex in the Over 40s, where he says, it's too good for them, they look so unattractive, undressed, let them read newspapers. <laughs> it's interesting to note that newspaper circulation declined considerably after that poem was written. <laughs> which testifies to the defiant, defiant libidos of the middle-aged. Or a, a poem like a, a, a Consumer's Report, where he says, the name of the product I tested was life. It takes a serious writer to think of life as just a product. But if you want to achieve posterity status, and that's what all poets want, they don't do it for the money. It's that you'll be read in years to come. And if you want your poems, your signature poems, those three or four the critics have labelled your classics, to stick around seriously in anthologies decade after decade and century after century, then that's what the serious poet wants. For most poets, posterity is their Lassiter's Reef, a mystical reef of gold they will never find for themselves. But we are here today because Peter Porter has found the reef. The posterity has begun. And it's a shame he had to die to get it. <laughs> I had the, uh, the honour of becoming Peter Porter's friend in the last well, half a dozen years of his life, and I observed this about him. He seemed to be a man who must have been born middle-aged, born with grey hair and with big glasses. Though I see down on the photos downstairs, he actually once wasn't grey. I can't imagine him as a snotty-nosed kid or a spotty-smelly teenager. Such was his grand, world-weary manner, the same manner you get in his poetry. He was the king of ennui, the man who seemed destined from birth to live out Auden's vision of poetry that it makes nothing happen but it flows on south from the ranches of isolation and the small griefs. And the small griefs we have all experienced that are small to us, but they're huge. They are not small to us, I should say. They are huge to us, but they are small in the scheme of life. The fate of the poet, or the fate of the serious writer, is to keep picking the scabs of those small griefs, year after year. Poets don't have closure, as we're told is useful and healthy for us. They pick and they pick. As Porter wrote in his poem, Calumny, the, poem, the poet who has turned remorse to habit keeps coming back to his decreed disaster. And his decreed disasters we all know about that we've spoken of today, the death of his mother when he was young and the suicide of his first wife, Janice, in 1974. And to the word remorse, you might have added the words guilt, pity, fear of death, morbid addiction to all these things. For these things gave him what the American novelist Jonathan Franzen calls your hot material. 
the stuff that gets you going, the subject matter that makes you get up in the morning and want to write. In Australia, poets have tended to be divided into the two warring families, the Hatfields and the McCoys, the Athenians or the Boeotians or Boeotians, however that word is pronounced. I don't, it's awful. It's an awful word. Um, but um, Porter was happy to be an Athenian, the urban, cultured, clever thing, as opposed to the other tribe, my tribe, with the ugly name Boeotian, <laughs> the hairy-handed, raw-knuckled and crude-smelling provincials <laughs> who write a lot about nature. Porter rather frowned on nature. He thought writing about nature stirred up too much sappy sentimentality. But like all of us, he was nothing if not a shocking hypocrite <laughs> and produced some beautiful nature poetry. My favourite is seahorses with the gorgeous description of these um, things as having the unbending seriousness of small creatures. And I hope anthologies of the future, the keepers of poetic posterity, find a place for that poem alongside the great Porter classics. And, and also hope they include uh, a poem, which is a very much an Athenian poem, called After Schiller, which, Christine, was that his final poem? Because yeah. yeah, I've always thought it might be close to a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, all right. It's the book you gave me. The well, that, I think after Schiller is just a magnificent poem, and it's an Athenian poem where with wonderful Athenian lines like "Love is the clumsiest of partnerships," and this, which is amazing lines for a man who's about to die. In this exacting planisphere, I cower. I have not moved one footstep from my birth. Anyway. I'll leave you with that cheerful thought. Thank you.